Book Six, Chapter Three, of The Mill on the Floors. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ted Nugent. The Mill on the Floors by George Eliot. Book Six, The Great Temptation, Chapter Three. Confidential moments. When Maggie went up to her bedroom that night, it appeared that she was not at all inclined to undress. She set down her candle on the first table that presented itself and began to walk up and down her room, which was a large one, with a firm, regular, and rather rapid step, which showed that the exercise was the instinctive vent of strong excitement. Her eyes and cheeks had an almost feverish brilliancy. Her head was thrown backward, and her hands were clasped, with the palms outward, and with that tension of the arms, which is apt to accompany mental absorption. Had anything remarkable happened? Nothing that you are not likely to consider in the highest degree unimportant. She has been hearing some fine music, sung by a fine bass voice, but then it was sung in a provincial, amateur fashion, such as would have left a critical ear much to desire, and she was conscious of having been looked at a great deal in rather a furtive manner from beneath a pair of well-marked horizontal eyebrows with a glance that seemed somehow to have caught the vibratory influence of the voice such things could have had no perceptible effect on a thoroughly well-educated young lady with a perfectly balanced mind who had had all the advantages of fortune training and refined society but if Maggie had been that young lady, you would probably have known nothing about her. Her life would have had so few vicissitudes that it would hardly have been written. For the happiest women, like the happiest nations, have no history. In poor Maggie's highly strung, hungry nature, just come away from a third-rate schoolroom with all its jarring sounds and pretty round of tasks. These apparently trivial courses had the effect of rousing and exalting her imagination in a way that was mysterious to herself. It was not that she thought distinctly of Mr. Stephen Guest or went on the indications that he looked at her with admiration. It was rather that she felt the half-remote presence of a world of love and beauty and delight made up of vague, mingled images from all the poetry and romance she has ever read or had ever woven in her dreamy reveries. Her mind glanced back once or twice to the time when she had courted privation, when she had thought all longing, all impatience was subdued. But that condition seemed irrecoverably gone, and she recoiled from the remembrance of it. No prayer, no striving now, could bring back that negative peace. The battle of her life, it seemed, 
was not to be decided in that short and busy way by perfect renunciation at the very threshold of her youth. The music was still vibrating in her still, person's music, with its wide passion and fancy, and she could not stay in the recollection of that bare, lonely past. She was in her brighter area world again when a little tap came at the door. Of course, it was her cousin who entered in ample white dressing gown. Why, Maggie, you naughty child, haven't you begun to undress? said Lucy in astonishment. I promised not to come to talk to you because I thought you must be tired. But here you are, looking as if you were ready to dress for a ball. Come, come, get on your dressing gown and unplait your hair. Well, you're not very forward, retorted Maggie, hastily reaching her old pink cotton gown and looking at Lucy's light brown hair brushed back in curly disorder. Oh, I have not much to do. I shall sit down and talk to you till I see you are really on the way to bed. While Maggie stood and unplaited her long black hair over her pink drapery, Lucy sat down near the toilet table, watching her with affectionate eyes, and hid the little aside like a pretty spaniel. If it appears to you at all incredible that young lady should be led on to talk confidentially in a situation of this kind, I will beg you to remember that human life furnishes many exceptional cases. You really have enjoyed the music tonight, haven't you, Maggie? Oh, yes, that is what prevented me from feeling sleepy. I think I should have no other mortal ones if I could always have plenty of music. It seems to infuse strength into my limbs and ideas into my brain. Life seems to go on without effort when I am filled with music. At other times, one is conscious of carrying a weight. And Stephen had a splendid voice, hasn't he? Well, perhaps we are neither of us judges of that, said Maggie, laughing, as she seated herself and tossed her long hair back. You are not impartial. And I think any barrel organ splendid. But tell me what you think of him now. Tell me exactly, good and bad too. Oh, I think you should humiliate him a little. A lover should not be so much at ease and so self-confident. He ought to tremble more. Nonsense, Maggie as if anyone should trouble at me. You think he is concerted, I see that. But you don't dislike him, do you? Dislike him? No. Am I in the habit of seeing such charming people that I should be very difficult to please? Besides, how could I dislike anyone that promised to make you happy, my dear thing? Maggie pinched Lucy's dimple chin. We shall have more music tomorrow evening, said Lucy, looking happy already. 
because Stephen will bring Philip Wickham with him. Oh, Lucy, I can't see him, said Maggie, turning pale. At least I could not see him without Tom's leave. Is Tom such a tyrant as that? said Lucy, surprised. I'll take the responsibility then. Tell him that it was my fault. But dear, said Maggie falteringly, I promised Tom very solemnly before my father's death. I promised him I would not speak to Philip without his knowledge and consent. And I have a great dread of opening the subject with Tom, of getting into a quarrel with him again. But I never heard of anything so strange and unreasonable. What harm can poor Philip have done? May I speak to Tom about it? Oh, no, pray don't, dear, said Maggie. I'll go to him myself tomorrow and tell him that he wished Philip to come. I've thought before of asking him to absolve me from my promise, but I've not had the courage to determine on it. They were both silent for some moments, and then Lucy said, Maggie, you have secret for me, and I have none from you. Maggie looked meditatively away from Lucy, then she turned to her and said, I should like to tell you about Philip, but Lucy, you must not betray that you know it to anyone, least of all to Philip himself or to Mr. Stephen Guest. The narrative lasted long, for Maggie had never before known the relief of such an outpouring. She had never before told Lucy anything of her inmost life, and the sweet face bent towards her with sympathetic interest, and the little hand pressing hers encouraged her to speak on. On two points only she was not expansive. She did not betray fully what still rankled in her mind as Tom's great offence, the insults he had heaped on Philip. Angry as the remembrance still made her, she could not bear that anyone else should know it at all, both for Tom's sake and Philip's. And she could not bear to tell Lucy of the last scene between her father and Wickham, though it was this scene which she had ever seen found to be a new barrier between herself and Philip. She merely said, she saw now that Tom was, know the whole, right in regarding any prospect of love and marriage between her and Philip as put out of the question by the relation of the two families. Of course, Philip's father would never consent. There, Lucy, you have had my story, said Maggie, smiling, with the tears in her eyes. You see, I'm like Sir Andrew Adjicic. I was adored once. Ah, now I see how it is you know Shakespeare and everything, and have learned so much since you left school, which was always seemed to me witchcraft before. Part of your general uncanniness, said Lucy. She mute a little with her eyes downward, and then added, looking at Maggie. It is very beautiful that you should love Philip. I never thought such a happiness 
would befall him. And in my opinion, you ought not to keep him up. They are obstacles now, but they may be done away with in time. Maggie shook her head. Yes, persisted Lucy. I can't have been hopeful about it. There is something romantic in it, out of the common way. Just what everything that happens to you ought to be. And Philip will adore you like a husband in a fairy tale. Oh, I shall puzzle my small brain to contrive some plot that will bring everybody into the right mind so that you can marry Philip when I marry somebody else. Wouldn't that be a pretty ending to all my poor, poor Maggie's troubles? Maggie tried to smile, but shivered, as if she felt a certain chill. Oh, dear, you are cold, said Lucy. You must go to bed, and so must I. I dare not think what time is it. They kissed each other, and Lucy went away, possessed of a confidence which had a strong influence over her subsequent impressions. Maggie had been thoroughly sincere. Her nature had never found it easy to be otherwise. But confidences are sometimes blighting, even when they are sincere. End of Book 6, Chapter 3